Welcome to the Overcoming Financial Trauma Podcast. It's time to remove guilt, shame, and fear from conversation around your money, mindset, and mission. Let's normalize these conversations. Here's your host, financial coach and consultant, Rakim Sabri. Him Sabri. Him Sabri. Welcome to another episode of Overcoming Financial Trauma, the podcast. I'm your host, Rakim Sabri, and I cover financial trauma and financial empowerment for people who look like me. Today, I have Anthony Carter, who is a seven-time author committed to social change with me. Welcome, Anthony. Tell the, uh, tell the lovely people who you are, where you're from, and what you're passionate about. Okay, who I am, where I'm from, and what I'm passionate about. Okay, my name is Anthony Carter. I, um, I'm originally from Detroit, Michigan, so from Motown, grew up there, um, went to college in the South, um, spent some time, I've lived everywhere, spent some time living in Japan, some time living in Boston, some time living in Atlanta, um, just moved to the West Coast, I'm sorry, moved to the West Coast 14 years ago, just moved back to the East Coast, I'm now in Connecticut, been here five months. And I am passionate about um, ideas. I'm passionate about uh, people who resist the norm, who decide, oh, I don't like the way this is going. And even though everybody's going to the left, I'm gonna go to the right. I'm also passionate about people committed to transforming themselves and the culture at large. And we met, on Twitter, um, yes. I, we, we've met several times, right? We met on Twitter. You joined our weekly Twitter space. Shout out to uh, Finn Noir. And, um, and then I was a guest on your podcast. And so now we're, we're kind of changing roles. You know, I was being interviewed in that environment. Now I'm going to be interviewing you. And um, I just want to start, you know, really deep, really fast, right? We talked about homelessness and the mission of um, eradicating homelessness on my part, on your podcast. And you had shared that you had um, some thoughts, some experiences with homelessness that, um, that you wanted to share. So let's go into that because as we talk about financial trauma, that is certainly, I mean, I think one of the most traumatic financial experiences that you can go through. And why don't we, um, kind of dive into like what that spectrum of homelessness looks like in the way that we did on your show. Um, so let me uh, start off start off first by saying, I appreciate you having me on your show. Thank you for having me as a guest. Um, I think you're doing great work for the world, for the planet. In terms of homelessness and trauma or financial trauma, uh, I can't think of, and I'm sure there is, and I, rather, I don't want to get into saying one is worse, you know, one thing is worse than the other, or this is more traumatic, whatever. I can say from personal experience and from watching other people, it is extremely traumatic when your housing situation is kind of in limbo, right? Or you don't have one, or you're at the mercy of other people. Um, for a while, for me, I was living in, uh, right outside of LA in Long Beach, California. And I was homeless for a year. And I was a 21st century 
version of it, which is um, couch surfing. You know, which is not you're not in the street, you're not living in a, you're not living in a cardboard box, but you're at somebody's house and you're on the couch and you're you know you don't really have your own room with a door, and you're kind of it's it's the equivalent of being a grown ass person and moving back in with your parents, right? So you don't really have any say of how the housing situation looks, what goes on there, what you're not able to make any decisions or weigh in on anything, right? So I had, um, I was doing that for a year solid in California. And the tricky thing about it, the ugly thing about it was, I didn't even know this was, I didn't even know I was homeless until I was talking to an ex on the phone and he pointed that out. And he was like, oh, what you're doing is the 21st century of home. And I said, me? I was shocked because I thought homelessness and being with, and being unhoused as I call it now, looked a certain way because I'd seen homeless people. And I was like, well, you know, I still look fabulous. I'm still getting, you know, I, I have no money, but I still look good. I'm still getting, you know, I'm still doing all the things that I would ordinarily do, but on a lesser scale. So until somebody pointed it out, then I started thinking, oh, wait a minute. I don't have a choice in this. I don't have a choice in this. I don't have a voice in how this is handled, how what gets done and not getting done. Yeah, this is the situation. And I fought like hell to move myself out of it. And I moved myself out of it by literally um, writing every day. I do, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but I um, have been following the artist's way for a long time. And she talks about morning pages. So every day I journal. I've been doing that now for mm, 27, maybe 28 years. That wow. Might, yeah, maybe something like that. And I just wrote every day. I kept telling myself and I kept writing, you're bigger than this. You're more than this. This is not who you are. And I kept going and kept going. And it took me a while to get on my feet. And then when I did, I kind of never looked back. I was like, okay, I figured out what to do. And um, like Dave Ramsey says, you can wander, you can wander into like financial like nonsense and foolishness, right? But to get out of it and stay out of it, you have to be very deliberate. And very like you, that's not a mistake. You don't wander into financial solvency. <laughs> right. That doesn't just happen. You have to make a plan and stick to it. So that that's some of my experience around that situation. Yeah, I um I have a lot of thoughts, but I want to ask you, what about the daily writing? You said that you've been doing that for a while. What about that? did it for you right I, I believe very much in the power of words um mm -hmm. I believe very much in manifesting right mm -hmm. and so talk about and I'm a writer too so this is like I can nerd out about writing forever but talk about the the impact or really kind of the intimacy of writing for you mm -hmm. as my experience is mostly public facing so I used to write as a kid in a journal um and you know early teens but I have not journaled keeping it from the world um and I think some of that has to do with social media and just mm -hmm. having a platform and you know seeing that the impact of my words and my thoughts um on other people create change but um I've had kind of like this selfish desire to you know pen essays and um prose that nobody would ever see 
And I'm just, I'm, I'm really fascinated by that concept. I mean, 20 years is a long time to, to write. And, you know, mm -hmm. I know that maybe all of the writing is not something that you're kept to yourself because you're a seven time author, but um, I'm sure just kind of listening to you talk your way or write your way out of homelessness, that there was something about that experience that was transformative. Yes, um, very much so. I really believe that um, there's something about journaling, like you said, or writing your thoughts, putting pen to paper in a way that is not going to be shared with the world. You know, and it's hard because we live in a, we we live in a time where, and I think about this all the time, a lot of times with young people that I know, we live in a time where everything has to be recorded. You know, everybody needs to share everything, and I know that's that's kind of the culture we've we've all kind of bought into and cultivated the last 20, 25 years, you know? So then there's no sense of, and I'm not talking about hiding, but there's, there's no sense of um, this is for me because I need it, you know, before I plug into and see what the world is doing. So my experience has been even before, you know, I, I know people that wake up in the morning and the first thing they do is they jump on Twitter, they check emails, they're already consuming what other people have put out. And my experience has been, before I do that, I need to put something out. Like I need to write, I need to figure out, I need to figure out what I think about things before I'm influenced or impacted by what somebody's doing, not doing what they're saying, not saying. And so for me, it's, it's been very pivotal and being very, very clear about what I think, what I need where my head is, you know, a lot of times, you know, because it's three pages of stream of consciousness, I may be writing and it may be three pages of me just cussing somebody out, right? Being pissed off. And I know that that's okay to do, and I can write things that I wouldn't necessarily, I wouldn't necessarily say those things to people. I would say it in a way they could hear it. It may be just as passionate, but the wording may be different. But also, but I also use it as a way kind of um, I think of it like a, a pipe or like plumbing, where you get you got all this junk and it's stopping up your pipes, right? And before you can get anything going, you got to flush the junk out, you know. And that's not a, a lot of fun. It takes a lot of pressure to push that stuff through. So for me, that's what I use my 20 minutes in the morning to do. Um, they're extremely pivotal in terms of me just getting clear about a what's essential to me, what's important. And be what do I think, you know, before I can, um, before I decide to let the world in, because my experience has been once you start letting the world in, if you're not careful, the day will get away from you. Whatever you thought you were gonna do, it's not gonna get done because now you're managing everybody else in the world. You know, it's like the difference between going to, it's like when I go to work, when I go to a job, I have no idea where they're gonna come in with that day. Right. I don't know. I don't you may have had a, a fight with your significant other. The cat may have died. I have no idea what people are going to come in with. So rather than be at the effect of that, there are things I have to do to kind of both take care of myself and kind of um, I don't want to say armor up because it's kind of I don't want to say that, but basically prepare myself. So that whatever kind of craziness is coming at me at any particular moment of that day. I'm kind of fortified is what I'm looking for because I don't know what's going to happen. 
So for me, that's what it's done for me. And it's, it's also enabled me to look at my, um, to chart my growth, my personal growth. Like if, I, if the same things keep coming up, if I'm still complaining about something you said to me six months ago, I was like, why am I still on that? <laughs> Either let it go or resolve it or resolve it a different way or just, or let, or tell myself this isn't going to be resolved. I need to, I need to manage this some other kind of way or not manage it. But to me, it's a really great tool for looking at where am I stuck? You know, where am I rehearsing the same nonsense and how can I, um, as I always say, how can I come up with some new routines, some new rituals? Because these, these are not working. <laughs> yeah, no, I love that. And I am definitely that person who um, sleeps within arm's reach of my phone and wakes up in the middle of the night and checks social media and wakes up in the morning and checks my email. Oh, no. <laughs> so I, um, I know that I, I need to get away from that. I've known for a while that I need to get away from that. But I think there's a kind of sort of addiction right to to what's happening like being in the know and it's also a vice right so it, you know I use my platforms to share uh some people would say that I overshare some people would say that I don't share enough but um I think you know the aspects of what you just articulated right and being susceptible to somebody else's feelings and somebody else's thoughts and their perspectives as the first point of contact that you have when you open your eyes right. is huge. And, and, and that's a reality for a lot of people as we live in you know, this world where you know, somebody can publish a mistruth and it go viral because people have a group think. I, I don't just accept what, what's circulating on social media as you know, law of doing the journaling but to your point, there is definitely something to be said about pen on pad and dumping those thoughts uh, privately and, and not sharing that with the world for critique. So, yes, we're talking about how homelessness can be, I mean, is probably the, the most extreme form of financial trauma. You don't realize that you're homeless until you do. And then once you realize that you're homeless, you're like, okay, I need to, to write myself out of this experience. Then what? Right? So you're telling yourself that, you know, you're more than this. You deserve more than this. Like um, you talked about intentionality in your finances. Like how, what are the steps that you took to, um, to, to make that change? Um. Well, a couple of things. One thing is I, um, I'm a Buddhist, so I chant every day. And I do, I practice the same Buddhism as Tina Turner. So I have an altar and I chant and that helps clear up. That helps get really, me to get really clear and look inward and not for somebody to save me, but to say, okay, if I've orchestrated these set of circumstances and I'm now at this point, that means I can orchestrate something else. And we've already done this, right? We, we know we can. So as my friend would say, as a young folks say, I'm off that. We, we've done that, right? So how do I orchestrate something different? So for me, that was a big part of it. The other thing is what I really started doing is I was smart enough to look around and try to find people who had figured some things out that I hadn't, right? And then I was smart enough to shut up and listen. 
right? And put the, because it, like people always say, you know, success leaves clues, but so does failure, right? So I found some folks, my partner, who's, who's my partner at the time, now we're married. I found a couple of other people who were doing it differently. And I kind of sort of asked how they were doing it. Most of my time was spent watching, right? And observing, oh, this is how you take care of this. This is how you make sure this doesn't happen again. So here's a good example. So yesterday I got a uh, uh, letter in the mail from my old insurance company from when I lived in California. And they sent me, I right before I left, I didn't know whether, I didn't know where I was gonna be working in Connecticut, you know, insurance, I didn't know what I was gonna be doing in terms of a job and, and benefits. So I, per, I called my insurance company, I was off of one policy, but I got another one that I paid up for out of pocket. Well, I was only gonna pay for it for a little while until I could get something going. So anyway, it, that time period came and went and I didn't bother, I thought it was canceled. I got a, this letter yesterday saying, you owe, us, you, owe, you owe us all this money. You didn't pay between this time, this time, this time. Now, talking about watching people and learning the way my husband does stuff, when something like that comes, he jumps on it immediately, right? He calls the company right then. Part of me thought yesterday, well, oh, it's already late. I don't want to call California. They're probably closed. I'll do it tomorrow. But then something said, well, we're going to do all of this differently. No, get up and call now. You know, so I got up. It was eight o'clock last night here in Connecticut. I got up. I called. They put me on hold forever. When somebody finally got on the phone, I was able to, I was able to correct the problem. You know, don't owe them any money. And I handled it, right? So that, so to me, that's a really good example of I got around people who who had taught themselves to make different choices, and I started watching it. And I started, I did the same thing that people do when you're raising kids. Kids don't listen to what you say. You can. That's why. That's when people, when parents say, "Yeah, I'm gonna," kids do not listen. They watch what you do, right? And then you figure out, oh, this is how you handle money, or mis or mishandle it, right? <laughs> This is how you have a disastrous relationship or a great one, right? So it was the same thing for me. I, I started surrounding myself with people who, because um, there were some things I wanted. I wanted to really, I wanted to get a handle on my finances and I wanted to have a really great relationship. And to me, a lot of those things are connected. So I started looking for people who had figured out those, those chunks of the puzzle. And I started listening and watching and watching. And like, okay, how does this person do this? Or what does it mean when, you know, you have, you're not by yourself. So there's certain decisions you're not going to make, you're not going to make, you know, or you're not going to put somebody in, a, in that predicament of like worrying about money or worrying about this. So that's what I did. I found, like I say, I found people that were further along and I shut up and listened and shut up and watched, you know, and I didn't argue. Well, I don't want to do it that way. I'm different. You don't know my situation. We had, I tried it my way. <laughs> so that's, that's what I did. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's, some, that's some gems, right? For, for people who are listening and, and, you know, trying to figure their way out of their own head, right? Because personal finance is, I think I read a statistic that said 80% of the decisions we make around money are based off of our emotions, right? So our thoughts and our feelings. And, you know, there are people who study this and, you know, certainly it's a path that I'm on, right? Understanding uh, financial psychology and psychology as a whole. But 
a lot of people have like this misconception that if they knew better, they would do better. <laughs> and uh, that's not always true, right? There are a lot of people out there who know what they should be doing, but for whatever reason, they won't do that thing. And, you know, variables do matter, right? Circumstances do matter. If, if there is an obstacle that's preventing you from doing that thing, you have two choices. You allow that obstacle to remain an obstacle or you figure out your way around it. And so that makes achieving whatever is on the other side of that obstacle um, maybe more worth it or viewed as a much more of a challenge. It's like, you know what, I'm not even going to touch it. So um, everybody should uh, be quiet, listen, and, <laughs> and watch, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I also want to... Push back a little bit, push in. I think all of our decisions around money are emotional, right? I think the difference is um, probably 80% or more, and I've heard this from Dave about from reading Dave Ramsey and other people, uh, most of our decisions are habitual. So we kind of keep doing. So when you want something different, that's what I was just saying about watching other people. The only thing that changed was my habits. You know, I was still the same person. There were still things I liked and didn't like, but I changed my habits. And I changed them based on these emotions. I don't want to be in this situation. I don't care what I need to do, but I'm not, we're not doing this again. Right. And I think a lot of times, you know, I think when you, um, most of our decisions are emotionally driven. And I think most of what we do, it's just like when you meet somebody who's always broke. Well, that's a habit. Right. You can you can ask them what they do with their money and you look at their habits. That's a bar. Oh, Being broke yeah. is a habit. <laughs> yeah. or, <laughs> well, like I always tell people, you can look at somebody's bank statement. Right. You can look at a person. You can go to somebody. You can say, let me pronounce your ATM. Go to go to your bank. Give me your bank statement. Money tells a story. And you can tell me all day and night what's important to you. I can look at your credit card statement and tell you what's important to you. Now I can look at your bank statement. And, you know, I've been, I've taught financial literacy to people, you know, people who are 18, people who are 70, I've done it for years, right? And it's, and, and the only difference, now some people have more money than others. Some people, and you think, how do you have all this money? You don't make, but, you know, and they make, they have certain habits. And, you know, when you start watching people, you're like, no, that, that's a habit. You know, and I got to tell somebody once we were talking about spending money, we were talking about a spending plan or a budget or a spending diary. And I say, yeah, spending every dime you have. I say, here, I say, here's an example. I say, if you get money, right? And before you get your paycheck or your money, if you've decided, okay, this is going to go here, this is going to go here, this is going to go here. Once again, according to the great Dave Ramsey, every dollar needs to have an assignment. If you don't, either you're going to give it an assignment or the world is going or somebody else is going to come in and give it an assignment. So when you don't have it mapped out what you're going to do with it, as soon as you get it, it's going to be gone. And what I tried to, I was teaching this one group and they were this group of homeless people. And this guy was saying, you know, we were talking about money and what he was going to spend. He said, oh, I don't have a management style. I said, oh, yes, you do. I said, your management style is you're going to spend every day. As soon as that money hits your, you know, you spend it like you think it's going to rot, as Chris Rock would say. <laughs> I said, that's your, that's, your, that's your management style. I'm going to spend it all. That's the, and I wasn't that that's productive. It's something completely different. But that is a management style. Spend it all. Okay, well, or not. So I think um, when you start looking at people and money and what they do with it, you, like I say, people can say whatever they want to out of their mouths. You can watch what they do. 
you know, and watch their habits. And it's like, no, that's, you know, especially when you meet people that have, you know, all these skills and abilities and you're like, why are you in that situation? You know, oh, it's so hard to save money. And I tell people all the time, no, saving money is a habit just like spending it is. Just like going to the mall every week or going to Amazon or to the club, wherever you go, <laughs> that's a habit. Oh, when I get my check, I'm going to go out. Well, why? You know, you, you just see the same people, you know. <laughs> so it, you know, most of, most habitual, it's our habits, it's our habits. Yeah, I, um, you said something I want to dig in a little bit and, and then I want to change the topic because I don't want you to like be the poster child for homelessness, right? <laughs> but it is, but, but it is, it's a, it's a fascinating topic mm. because we don't talk about it um, with warmth in our society right we talk about it as like you know ill like you know these people who chose right. to be in this situation right. and um and you and i know you know homelessness is a spectrum and it looks very different depending on you know who where you are in that spectrum right i think you know i grew up in new york i became desensitized to homelessness very early on because you know you have the guy or the girl standing on the corner shaking their cup for change and you just learn to like look through them mm-hmm. um and then I started an extended hand and I'm like I had to get re-educated on like what does homelessness look like in you know school-age children what does homelessness look like for veterans who came back and you know had a hard time re-entering the world of the civilians what does homelessness look like for people who are incarcerated or who have right. uh, mental disabilities or I mean just things on top of things on top of things what does homelessness look like for people who couldn't pay their medical bills like who otherwise would have very very normal lives but debt and you know financial obligations price them out of housing um it's 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 really and and i shared this on on your show what most americans don't realize is that they're a paycheck or two away from homelessness and what i'm hearing you say around habits in that, um, you know, being broke is a habit as we joked and and I think establishing or building wealth is a habit. I want to hear about um, the education that you've provided for people who are experiencing homelessness around their finances because um, I am going to be an incoming board member for Um, a local nonprofit that focuses on helping men transition from homelessness into independence. And, um, you know, a lot of people think, oh, if you teach them about money, and and a lot of people, I'll raise my hand, right? Like that was the premise behind an extended hand, using financial education as a preventative um, variable to homelessness, but being in, in the space, working with this organization, understanding you know financial psychology i also realized that when you're in a situation like that um and you said something that was just super profound some people don't realize that it's a problem Mm -hmm. some people realize that it's a problem and want to get out of it some people realize that it's a problem and make that problem go away by becoming okay with it so how do you educate somebody who is in this place of desperation. Um, They have housing insecurity. 
maybe food insecurity. And, you know, they know about the shelters, they know about the soup kitchens, they know how to navigate life, but um, they need steady employment and ultimately need to dig themselves out of their circumstances. Um, if we could look at, if we could just boil it down into like a purely financial perspective, what does that look like um, for you as an educator to that demographic? Um, <clears throat> for me, I, you know, I'm thinking that when I've taught people or when I've supported them in moving out of and changing their station in life, it was never, I don't know that I ever started with things from a financial standpoint. I think I always started with, you know, the emotions, um, what's important to you, right? What's important to you? Not even, not even so much as like, okay, what do you want to be in five years, right? Because if you're struggling and you, you don't even know when you're going to eat the next time, you're not thinking five years down the road. So for me, I try to meet people, you know, where they are. I, you know, I, the education for me, the education piece for me always, always starts with a couple of questions, you know, basically around, you know, where are you now? What do you need? Where do you need support? What do you think you need support? Right. And then what I usually do is I lay a bunch of things out. Once they tell me, I, I lay a bunch of things out. Let's, this is just, I'm just going to give you a visual. So I may come in and say, okay, uh, Rakim, these are 10 things that I can offer. Once we've had a little bit of a conversation, you know, here are 10 things I can offer you that I know how to do that I know work. Here, here are 10 tools. You may say, well, I don't like none of them tools. Or you may say, can we, I want to start here, right? So even before we jump into all this other stuff, you know, I don't, I'm not looking at buying a car right now. I, I want to know that I've got, how do I manage the um, food stamp card, the EBT card that I'm getting, right? How do I do, you know, and it's, you have to kind of, um, when you're educating folks, I think what you're really doing is you really, my experience has been, you have to put, put them in charge of the education process. You come in with the tools, but then you let, but you, but you let people pick up the tool, the tools they want to use. And your job as an educator is just to, is just to um, keep focusing on whatever that tool is until they pick up another one. What you don't want to do, and I've seen people do it, and I've been guilty of it is, you know, you come in with all these tools with this cape on, like you're going to save the day. Well, nobody, nobody wants to feel like you're saving them. That's highly insulting. Um, what that says is you don't have enough wherewithal to figure out your life, you know. And whether or not that's true is not even important. But I think people want to feel like, okay, um, one of the things that I told my husband we got together, he was already he was established when we got together, and I was not. And I was like, well, what what do we do? Well, I remember saying, why would you date me? I wouldn't date me. Like, I, I'm like, what what are we doing here? And I remember saying to him, okay, what I would like to see is um, I want you to, to basically bear witness while I do what I do best, which is execute and turn ships around, right? Well, I turn this, turn my life around. Don't need you to fix it. Don't need you to come in and you know, write a check. We don't, we're not doing any of that because that doesn't do anything but lead to resentment and a whole bunch of nonsense down the road. 
So to me, it's the same thing when I'm when I've taught financial literacy, you know, whoever it is, because when you get down to it, most things, and I've probably done this with over 100 people, when you start talking about finances, you'll start seeing a lot of the same things come up, right? People that handle their finances a certain way make certain choices. People that don't, and it's, it's so funny, it's, it, it doesn't matter where you meet them, what you're teaching, you can ask you can ask one or two pivotal questions and you start hearing patterns like, okay, well, you know, you're doing this. When you did this, this happened. And I think I think part of the education process too is getting people to connect the dots. So like I tell people, unless you've got Oprah or Bill Gates kind of money, you don't have any extra money, right? <laughs> so, so if you're using this over here, and let's say, you know, okay, like I was reading the other day about somebody talking about a tax return. And everybody wants to jump up and down about getting this tax return and going to the Bahamas or whatever people do with their money, right? I know people that get huge tax returns, 10, 15, $18,000. Now you think, okay, now you spent a whole year talking about you have no money and now you get this big lump sum. But you know, they got to buy a car. They need a new iPhone, you know, and just like that, and then you look up and you say, okay, well, you've, okay, now you've had this money, you bought this over here. You only have so much. Like the old folks say that are on um, social security, I'm on a fixed income. We all are, you know, <laughs> we're all on Nobody has unending pools of money. So with me, a lot of times in the education process is all about getting people to look at the cause and effect. Okay, you do this over here. And maybe this will happen here, maybe it won't. I was teaching this class once and these two women were in the class and they came and somebody, they we were doing some, some financial thing and they came in and one of them was late or whatever. We started talking about why certain things were happening. And some kind of way she started talking about something happened and she, she, she would drink and kind of like pass out. And she said, yeah, well, you know, um, something happened with money. I think she lost a job. Some, anyway, she had everybody on board with her nonsense in terms of why she wasn't doing what she needed to do financially. And she had trained everybody in her house. Oh, when she gets this way, you know, leave her alone. She needs to sleep it off. So she, she had a whole system, you know, for staying stuck. And, I, and she, she had never looked at it that way. You know, and I pointed out, I said, well, you, do you realize you got everybody in that house? You know, you've assigned everybody in that house a role to make sure that this doesn't change. You know, now nobody likes it. You don't really like it, but you can live with it. You know, <laughs> so everybody's got a job, you know, and, you know, you, you it's kind of, it's an it's a unspoken agreement. We're going to do it this way. So, um, yeah, the education piece is all about getting people to look at what they're doing. Um, maybe not even looking so deep as why they're doing what they're doing. Let's look at the what, what are you, what are you doing? You know, and then you, you know, really pointing out, okay, you said you wanted this. Like I used to tell people when I worked um, in the culinary arts with college students at, at um, community college, I said, well, I'm really about helping you build uh, um, becoming economically self-sufficient, being able to take care of yourself in this chosen career. And I would tell people, I, I would go, I would pitch the program and I'd talk, I would recruit. And I said, look, this is what I'm here to do. I can help you do this. If all you want to do is flip burgers, and there's nothing wrong with that. If all you want to do is flip burgers and make a little money and, you know, do whatever, and you're not really interested, 
in being economically self-sufficient or supporting yourself and your family, I can't help you. That's not what I'm here to do. I said, because to me, you don't need me for that. You don't need my support to do that. Now, if you want something different, you should come, you, you definitely should be in my course. You should definitely um, um, be a part of this cohort and you know, I can case manage you and we can map out some strategies. But if you wanna keep doing what you've been doing, I'm not the person for you. you know? And I had a hundred plus people on my caseload I was managing, you know, um, moving them out of all kinds of situations. But yeah, the education piece is like I said, really I think is formulating and looking at what are you doing? Not what do you, what? Not what do you say you're doing? What do you think you're doing? What are you actually doing? You know, and then looking at it and people are always shocked, you know, just shocked. You know? <laughs> yeah, no, you're, I mean, I was pretty intentional with asking that question and I've made reference on this show a couple of times to the organization uh, AFCPE mm -hmm. and <clears throat> the designation, the AFC designation of the accredited financial counselor. And interestingly enough, their um, approach to the education is um, very much consultative in, in the same way or in a very similar way, rather, to how you're describing it, right? Like, you let them decide what their goals are and then you help them along by um, you know, exposing them to tools and then you know, seeing you know, what do you wanna pick up and how can I support you in that? Um, what I hear when I hear you talk about this is uh, financial empathy, right? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, Dr. Michael Thomas talks about financial empathy quite a lot across his platforms. Um, I also hear financial inclusion, which is something that I've been kind of championing, championing over the last, uh, we'll call it six months to a year now, in that um, personal finance has, for the longest time, looked a very specific way. Mm -hmm. And I love the analogy that you used when you said, you know, people come in with their capes and they want to save the world and they want to impose their goals, their strategies, their methods, their tools onto who is on the receiving end of that. And um, in a lot of instances, you have this older white man who has all of the privilege that comes with being a white man, um, none of the obstacles or maybe a couple of the obstacles that a black man would have experienced in the realm of personal finance and, um, and they'll have the audacity to approach you from this bootstrapping narrative that says, oh, well, you just gotta work hard and you gotta learn about financial education and you just gotta want it bad enough. And there's um, an aspect of gaslighting that exists in that environment because we know what poverty looks like. We know what poverty feels like. We know what it, what it means to work hard and still you know, fall flat on your face. And what I'm seeing now and you know, certainly what I'm hoping to contribute to in financial education um, and you know, in the more specific uh, or rather niche down version of financial education that includes financial psychology and financial therapy is that, hold on a second, we need to acknowledge these variables um, like race, like privilege, like uh, socioeconomic status to say, yeah, there are tools that we can talk to and that we can, that we can expose people to, but like, what are the issues that prevent them from using those tools? 
not from a place of judgment, not from a place of, well, you should know better or you should have known better, um, not from a place of shame, but from a place of, okay, that's where you are. This is where you want to be. How do I help you accomplish that? Um, how do I model that behavior? How do I, Rakim Sabri, model that behavior as somebody that you can see yourself in, right? Whether that be on the basis of the fact that you look like me or we have a shared experience or we grew up in the same neighborhood or we, you know, um, I've, as far as education goes, I've gone as far as my associate's degree. So I never got my bachelor's degree. And for a long time, I had um, professional insecurity around that because especially working in the banking industry and getting into management and leadership, it started to become a thing that they were asking for. Like, well, you mm -hmm. know, when are you going to go back to school? And, you know, this will set you apart and in terms of competition. And these are your peak earning years and, you know, getting all those lectures and watching other people have those experiences. But when I think about, well, what is the reason why Rakim doesn't have a bachelor's degree? Um, without playing the victim, there were interruptions in my education. And even when I started schooling, there was the obstacle of getting there, right? I had to take out student loans. I had to use financial aid. Um, I was told that everybody takes out student loans at this particular point in time. And I remember, you know, very vividly that um, we would have tests and I'll never forget that the class was biology. I was, um, I went pre-med. We would um, have tests in bio biology and a lot of my classmates had like the newest edition of the book and they had the laptops out. And I had a book that was maybe two or three editions older that the teacher donated to me because after everything was paid for by my student loans, room, board, all that stuff, I didn't even have enough money for books. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my experience in academia starting, you know, very young in kindergarten all the way up through high school was that I was always one of the smartest kids in the room, right? It took very, very little effort for me to excel until you go into that environment um, as a first-gen college student, navigating this world, however you navigate this world, not knowing how to study and not having the proper materials to study. And, you know, at the end of the, the semester, the teacher spits out a C plus or a D minus. Like, I was ashamed of that grade, but that was an accomplishment given all of those obstacles. Mm -hmm. And so um, I use that example because I think that example is also an analogy for what the experience of a lot of people are when it comes to housing, when it comes to employment, when it comes to um, education specifically, when it comes to the management of their money. And, um, you know, a lot of us are just figuring it out as we go along. You know, fortunately, financial education is in vogue, right? It's a very popular topic. It's a buzz phrase um, on the top of many corporate initiatives and the initiatives of, you know, some legislation in some states. Mm -hmm. Now there's conversations about including financial literacy curriculum in schools. But for a long time, that wasn't the case. And talking about money was and still is, in, in, in many respects, very taboo, especially talking about your money. Right. So I think, you know, super kudos to you. And uh, I think what you shared is super important in that approach to educating people, because if somebody's not 
primed. And this goes back to your earlier point about the journaling and, um, you know, just kind of like the filtering out of the noise and the fortifying yourself. If somebody is not internally primed to receive this information, then you could sit on your soapbox all day talking about why, you know, you need to budget and you need to save and you need to pay yourself first and only go up to 30% of your credit utilization and, you know, blah, blah, blah. When people are facing a very different reality, a very specific reality that often um, includes making decisions out of survival. Right. And like you said, not being able to see five years down the line, but having to really look at a day-to-day existence or a week-to-week existence or a month-to-month existence. And, um, you know, also that, that statement about, you know, all of us being on a fixed income, like that's real, that's very real. And that's, you know, real for the people who are making, you know, $30,000 a year and less. And that's real for the people who are making $100,000 a year or more. Mm-hmm. Um, because again, to your point, our habits really kind of shape and, um, Informed with that, you know, the retention of that money um, as directed towards wealth building or spending of that money as directed towards, you know, financial ruin or, or a scarcity mindset looks like. Um, I know we've, we've been having a great conversation and, you know, the, we're running a little bit long, but I want to give you an opportunity to talk about your books because I think that's, I, I know as an author two and a half times that writing a book is no easy feat. So to have gone through that process seven times is super impressive to me. Um, and then your, you know, your projects and your initiatives that you want to kind of highlight or um, point people to in um, in hearing, you know, what it is that you've had to share. Okay. So um, the books, you know, they. Um, how can I just, how can I talk about the books? Um, Because they're different, right? Most of them are about um, being uh, black and male and gay in this society and what that looks like, right? And how things have shifted over the years. Um, I've got another book that's a science fiction collection of short stories another book on how to reinvent yourself when you find it like in the 21st century because stuff is changing so quickly. Um, yeah, writing, writing um, books is difficult. Luckily I have, once again, I have somebody around me who said, you know, I was doing all this writing and it said, you know, you should put that into a book form. I haven't thought about it. <laughs> so I was wise enough to put them together um, in a book form. So that's what a lot of the books are about. The, la- the latest one I put out is called Twice as Good. And it's all about Black excellence, people that inspire me. So I've got essays on Prince and Eartha Kitt and Lauren Hill and just all these really great um, Black artists and activists. Um, what I am currently pushing for now, my current initiative, if you will, movement, is all about um, finding, supporting, uh, lovingly encouraging 10,000 Black men in all over the country to put their health um, at the top of their priority list, to make their well-being a priority. I don't think we do that nearly enough. I, um, I don't know if you know this, but I'm a documentary filmmaker. So I have a documentary film called Ask the Old Guy, and it's all about my journey 
going from being at one point in my life in terms of health wise, moving through um, eating differently, being a, being a vegan, being plant-based and what that looks like. And I've now been plant-based um, for a little over two years since September 1 of 2020. And um, started shooting this film on it and just kind of kept going and kept going and meeting people. I met a ton of black vegans on Twitter and started interviewing them. And I put this film together, um, pushing to get it into some film festivals. I've been raising money to do a screening somewhere here, um, somewhere here in Connecticut, you know, first to second quarter of 23. Um, I don't, did, did I cover everything? I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's is your spotlight. So whatever you want to cover, oh, okay. it's, it's for you, yeah. <laughs> I think, you know, like it's fascinating um, that you had enough material to, to span seven books. And now, you know, I didn't know that you were a documentary filmmaker. So that's, I mean, that compounds that amazement. Um, so you're a storyteller, it sounds like. And, yes. <laughs> um, and, and that's awesome. Um, where can people find you if they want to reach out or engage? And um, do, I mean, do you have anything, any last parting words that you want to share with the audience? Sure, they can find me. Um, I have two websites. The first one, burnthemanualproductions.com burnthemanualproductions.com. That's where you can find the documentaries. You can find, I think I've got three documentaries on there. You can find documentaries on that website as well as a ton of podcasts. Um, I do a, a founder's chat with me and the co-founder. We do a chat every week. Those are shorter. Um, the, pod, the Visionaries and Truth Tellers is a podcast that you were on a week ago. And that's where you can find, those are longer podcasts. I'll talk to really interesting people moving the planet and humanity forward. If you want um, the writing, if you want books, if you want to go be able to go and buy books as well as get a free one, free, you know, um, for the latest book, um, twice as good, that one's free. If you, want to go to, if you want to go to my website, you can pick up those books. That website is my name, Anthony, A-N-T-H-O-N-Y, dash carter cs and cat a-r-t-e-r dot -E com anthony dash carter dot com is that website uh, in terms of social media the best place to find me is on twitter i try to focus i, I don't have it in me to do nine different <laughs> i'm not that gifted I, <laughs> I would rather be writing or making a film rather than trying to keep six different media social media channels up and running so i'm on twitter at anthony l carter Perfect. Well, Anthony, I appreciate you spending your time with me and um, talking about your journey. Uh, I know that there was a lot that we covered and certainly a lot that we didn't. So um, just accept my formal invitation to come back season three. And uh, yeah, we'll be in touch. This has been another episode of Overcoming Financial Trauma. I'm your host, Rakim Sabri, and I'll see you guys in the comments. Thank you very much. <laughs>